In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A blessed Septuagesima Sunday to each and every one of you. Septuagesima, a word meaning 70 days. We are 70 days away from the octave of Easter. Next Sunday will be Sexagesima, followed by Quincagesima, 70, 60, 50. These are approximations, as you can see. But what is the point of these Jessima Sundays? They form the season of pre-Lent, a time for us to prepare how it is that we will go about our Lenten observance. The Ash Wednesday text will bring to mind that our Lord says, when you pray, when you fast, when you give alms. And so in the church's wisdom, Lent is tied in with springtime, as if to say, you take time to evaluate your home and do a little spring cleaning. Take time also to evaluate your spiritual life and do a little spring cleaning. If you would take care of your body, if you would look at yourself in the mirror and say, whew, I need to do something about that, then how much more should we take time to look into the mirror of God's law and say, whew, I should be a little more intentional about my Christian life. Work, and I know this is going to be scandalous to say, work, discipline, labors, these things are good things. Indeed, we see this all the way back in the Garden of Eden, in the book of Genesis, that God takes man prior to his fall into sin, prior to the curse, and he places him into the garden that he would labor within it and keep it. Work is a good thing. So also we hear in our epistle lesson, St. Paul comparing the Christian life to running a race, and being a Christian to being an athlete, whether a runner or a boxer. Paul's point is that runners and boxers, all athletes, are disciplined. They labor and work and train in order to perform. And Paul sets these up as models for us in our Christian lives. Again, work is good. Paul goes on to highlight the kind of spiritual life that is displeasing to God. A kind of life that uses the sacraments of God not in the proper way but in an improper way. He says, do you remember the saints of old, how they had a baptism, 
They were all baptized into the Red Sea through Moses. They also had a spiritual supper. They had bread from heaven and and drank from that spiritual rock, which is Christ. Nonetheless, God was not pleased with them. And these things are written, St. Paul says, as an example for us, that we would not slump into a lazy Christianity that simply says, well, as long as I remember my baptism and go to the sacrament of the altar, nothing else matters. No, how we conduct ourselves within the Christian life is of the utmost importance. Now, we as Lutherans, among all other Christian traditions, have this particular strength that we have defined rather precisely the role of work in the Christian life. In the years after Martin Luther's death, he died in 1546, in the next five years, a controversy arose. There were great pressures to compromise politically and theologically with Rome. Philip Melanchthon, the once champion of the Reformation, was willing to compromise more than we are now comfortable with. But one of his disciples, George Major, took things even a step further. George Major made this statement that good works are necessary for salvation. Now, one could possibly understand how that statement could be construed as true and faithful to the Scriptures, but on its surface, it's problematic to be sure. As is so often the case in theological disputes, what comes next is not a correction of the error to the truth, but rather a correction of the error with the opposite error. And so along comes a man named Nicholas von Amsdorf. And he teaches this, that good works are detrimental to salvation. Over the course of the next 12 years. Now, I take great comfort in that, that theological controversies sometimes take a long time to solve. In the course of the next 12 years, it was resolved by the Lutherans and codified in one of our confessional documents, the Formula of Concord, Article 4, how we ought to think about these things. In regard to Nicholas von Amsdorf's statement that good works are detrimental to salvation, we could properly say, yes, good works are detrimental to salvation if you trust in them. Because salvation, strictly speaking, is by grace, through faith, and apart from works. Then to George Major, and his statement that good works are necessary for salvation, we can rightly respond, good works are necessary indeed 
but it would be wrong to say that they're necessary for salvation. Good works are of the utmost importance. Good works are, and I know this is going to be mind-blowing, good. (laughs) But that is not how we are saved. And so we see in the gospel text today how our Lord Jesus preaches a parable in which he teaches us both the importance of grace and the right understanding of it, as well as the necessary role of works. The kingdom of heaven, he says, is like a man who went out into the marketplace to hire day laborers. He agreed with them that they would work for the fair price, a denarius. Now, any manager worth his salt is going to go into the marketplace but once. He knows exactly how much work needs to be done in his vineyard. He knows exactly how many day laborers he will need. He hires just that many, and he doesn't waste his time returning. But as is so often the case with our Lord's parables, something odd always happens. And in this parable, the oddity is that this man continues to return to the marketplace. His first trip takes place at approximately 6 a.m. The workday lasts until 6 p.m. Those first laborers that he hires will indeed work 12 full hours in the vineyard. But as he comes back at the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, and even at the eleventh hour, we see something strange. That he's going there not out of his own interest, but he's going there to be gracious to these workers who have no work and thus have no pay. The third hour, about 9 a.m., the sixth hour, about noon, the ninth hour, about 3, and the eleventh hour, 5. He says to these something different. He says, whatever is right, I will pay you. And these men, without further questioning his goodness, go. They all labor, each bearing his own load, and at the end of the day, 6 p.m., the man says to his foreman, gather the workers together that I may pay them, but do so bringing the last first and the first last. When those who worked but one single hour It's not even enough time to put on your gloves and roll up your sleeves. When they come, he delivers to them an entire day's wage, a full denarius. And so he does for those that had come at the ninth, sixth, and third hours as well. Watching this, those who had come for the whole day, 
expected that they would receive something more. Interesting. If they had kept their eyes on this master of the house who came and hired them, they would know that he promised a denarius and a denarius is what he would give. But they take their eyes away from him and place their eyes upon the neighbor and they start calculating. When they arrive to receive payment, they also are given a denarius. And instantly they are embittered and they grumble. If you have little children, you've undoubtedly heard this refrain, maybe already today. That's not fair. And that is indeed the essence of the complaint. We have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But the manager answers, friend, I have done you no harm. Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? More literally, is your eye evil because I am good? There's an interesting paradox that as you look at this from the standpoint of those workers who worked all day, you can see how it's not unfair or how it is unfair. It's simply not just. This is looking at things according to the kingdom of this world. But the kingdom of heaven is altogether different. And in fact, the Lord reminds them right off the bat that I am just. I gave you exactly what we agreed upon. But I am also merciful. I am also good. It is important that when the manager of the house goes out into the marketplace, he doesn't see these day laborers and just say, have a denarius, have a denarius, have a denarius, go your way. What he gives them is so much more than a handout. Especially important in an honor culture. Or those men would return home with their denarius and the wife might ask, what did you do today to earn that? Oh, nothing, I received it as pure charity. You mean like a beggar? He doesn't simply give them a denarius, but he gives them a job that they can come home at the end of the day and say, I worked for this. That labor that he calls them into is of itself his gift. And then he pays super abundantly on top of that. We can see that 
Work is good. Labor in his vineyard is an honor. But it's not connected to the salvation freely given to that denarius and wage bestowed by his grace alone. Comparison is the thief of joy. If we keep our eyes on God, then everything we have, including forgiveness, life, and salvation, are but gracious and undeserved gifts. As soon as we take our focus off of our Lord Jesus and put it on our neighbor, why does he or she have more? More money, a bigger house, an easier family life. Why is it that they have blessings that I don't have? How is it that these kinds of Christians could be saved even as I'm saved? Not only has our joy been stolen from us, but also then, our understanding of God himself. God is gracious to each and to every one in exactly the way that he sees fit. If we train our eyes on him, then we will receive each and every blessing that he gives from his good and fatherly hand. and We will receive all other things as his good and fatherly discipline with the promise that he disciplines those whom he loves. It is never too late to enter his vineyard. If it is the 11th hour for you, if you say, I've spent my whole life dawdling in the marketplace, know this, You've in fact lost nothing. The manager invites you in to receive the same blessed denarius, the same blessed salvation as all of us. And there's great comfort in this, that any Christian who would stand before God and beat his breast and say, look at all that I have done. Quid pro quo, I've scratched your back, Lord, now you scratch mine. I am ready for the managerial position in heaven. Perhaps you can set up a throne right next to yours for me. That such a person exhibits an unchristian attitude and a heart stained by self-centeredness. No, rather, as Christians, we all come to that throne of God and we claim nothing. Indeed, I have no doubt that just as we all confessed our sins publicly, we would confess, I am he who came at the 11th hour. Well, haven't you been a Christian your whole life? Yes, but how has my labor been? I am not proud of it. I don't boast in it. I certainly am not owed salvation or anything else. Have mercy on me, Jesus. And in this parable, he shows and promises that he does have mercy 
and he will receive each and every one of us. The labor in the vineyard that ultimately matters is that which he himself performs. His labor on the cross by which that ancient curse, by the sweat of your brow you shall eat, the earth will produce thistle and thorn. That curse is borne by him as thistle and thorn are wrapped around his head and as he performs that final labor and pays that final price so that each and every one of us might be freely saved. And in that great labor of his vineyard, we see exactly why it is called a vineyard. For what flows forth from his labor is the wine of everlasting joy. It is the fruit and wine of his labors that we, all the workers in his vineyard, who have received the same salvation, will receive this very morning. As we come up and put our own lips with our own sins, with our own sorrows to the same chalice and receive the same blood that cleanses us, that enlivens us, that fills us once more with joy. May this joy give us strength as we prepare for the Lenten journey and as we buckle down to labor in the vineyard while we still may. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.